persuasion is good. Ideally, the political system here in America allows for different candidates attempt to persuade voters that their course is the wisest course of action. Ideally, advertising is an attempt by businesses to persuade consumers that their product is better than the competition. Schools try to convince prospective students to gain admission. Scientific journals are filled with academics trying to promote and defend their theses. Newspapers contain editorials and opinion pieces seeking to win their audience to their position. Persuasion is good, so we say. What about in the realm of religion? Uh, there, it seems, some would say that attempts at persuasion are bigoted or narrow-minded. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you've joined us. We think there's no better place for you to be than hearing God's word. I'm guessing that there are certain beliefs and behaviors which are different from yours, but they aren't so important that you seek to change people's minds. Right? You're happy for people to go their own way. Uh, perhaps your neighbor likes grilling or bonfires or late-night parties, minor inconveniences perhaps, but ones you're living, willing to live with, to each their own. But then again, I'm guessing there are also differences of opinion which you're not as quick to allow. If a drug lab or a crime syndicate moved in next door, you'd be quick to call the cops. If those neighborhood bonfires and late-night parties turned out to be animal sacrifices from the local dog shelter, you'd be appalled. You see, all of us have beliefs that we hold. All of us have beliefs that we allow. And then all of us hold certain truths to be so important that we seek to change people's minds and even their behavior. We try to persuade. As Christians, how should we seek to engage and relate to the outside world? How should we seek to speak the truths of God's word when claims of exclusive truth are often seen as judgmental in our culture today? This morning, we come to our second to last sermon in the book of Colossians, so I'd encourage you to turn there now. We'll be in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6 this morning. If you've not been with us so far in the book of Colossians, I think we're in like our 16th week, something like that. So we've just been going a few verses at a time through the, through the book of Colossians. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul laid out the supremacy of Christ over all things, his preeminence and sufficiency in salvation, his pre-incarnate glory, and his sacrificial death on the cross. He reminded the Colossian Christians, and he reminded us that we are full in Christ, lacking no good thing. And thus, we should walk in him. A Christian, you don't need to turn to asceticism or man-made religion to make you right with God. Because Jesus has already made you right with God. Salvation is not by the works that we do, but it's what Christ has accomplished for us. And then in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul turned to the practical. He told Christians to set their mind on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Uh, And then specifically, he told us to put off sexual morality and lust and anger and cursing. Instead, we're to put on the new humanity. Uh, We're to put on Christ as we walk in compassion and love and peace and unity. And so we come to our final passage this morning. The past couple of weeks, we kind of zeroed in on rules for the Christian household as the the ESV uh, heading has it. Uh, We kind of focused in on marriage and parenting and work. And so this morning, we come to our, our final passage in the book of Colossians before next week's super long outro. All right, so this morning we'll have three sections in verses two to six, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Pray and speak, suffer and live for gospel advance. Pray and speak, suffer and live for gospel advance. So look with me at Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Amen. Well, our first section is simply verse 2, entitled, Pray. And the command is simple enough, isn't it? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Or as many other translations have it, Devote yourselves to prayer. The emphasis here is on giving time to something. You see that in the ESV, right? Don't just continue to pray. Continue steadfastly in prayer. The point that the Apostle Paul is making is that we are to literally make ourselves busy. That's what the word means. Make ourselves busy with prayer. It's really important that we note that this command is in the plural form. Uh, So it's not just addressed to kind of individual Christians, but to the church, to you all. You all, you guys, should continue steadfastly in prayer. Next week, we'll see an example of how Epaphras individually labors on behalf of the Colossian Christians in prayer. Uh, But here in verse 2, the emphasis is not really on individuals praying, but on the church praying. Of course, that's exactly what we find when we look at the book of Acts, which records the the early history of the church. What's one of the, you know, marks of the early church? What are they giving themselves to, being busy with? Well, it's prayer. In Acts 1, the believers had, uh, you know, literally just been with Jesus, flesh and blood. He's literally before them. He ascends to heaven. And what do the believers do? Referring to the 120 persons just before the Spirit's descent at Pentecost, Acts 1.15 says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. It's that same word. They were busying themselves, continuing steadfastly in prayer. You see, brothers and sisters, there would have been no Pentecost without that prayer meeting. Jesus said, Ask and you will receive the Holy Spirit. 
the prayers and intercession of God's people is not incidental to our mission as a church, but rather critical to the life of the church. Under God, under his sovereign rule and reign, he has deemed prayer to be the means by which the church communes with its Savior, by which the Spirit is poured out in power for our ministry. We saw that earlier in what Stephen read from Acts 4, our scripture reading. Uh, Peter and John had just been released by the authorities, and the church responded you know, to persecution, not just by praying for protection. Well, no, they, they pray for greater boldness. Right? And the church answers, in, or rather God answers, in a remarkable way. The, the whole place shakes. Such is the power of corporate prayer. Why is prayer in the church so powerful? Right, we know that prayer is powerful because God is powerful. Uh, we are not strong, we are not mighty, but he is. And in prayer, we kind of tap into God's might as he bears his arm and works in the world. Okay, so that's why prayer in general is powerful. But why is prayer in the gathered church so meaningful? Well, it's because in the gathering of the church that Jesus has promised his authoritative presence. Do you remember in Matthew 18? Uh, he said, Jesus, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He wasn't mainly talking about meeting up at Starbucks to read the Bible. Uh, he wasn't mainly talking about small groups in your homes, as great as those things are. Just three verses earlier, he had referred to the church, the assembly, gathering together. So when he refers to those two or three, he's referring to the church, which has gathered as the body. So Jesus is saying, Trinity Church of Bedford, when you gather and everyone's on vacation, and it seems like there are two or three people in the room, or maybe it's you know, February break, and everyone's going skiing in Vermont, don't worry, there are two or three people there that Sunday. It's okay, because I'm there. Uh, my presence, my name, my power and authority, what you lack, I possess. What you need, I will provide. When you gather, I'm showing up. Whether it's two or three or two or three thousand. If the prayer of a righteous person availeth much, how much more so when the whole company of saints is interceding before the Lord? You remember in Luke 11, Jesus tells the parable of uh, there's a man, he's at sleep with his family, and a friend comes late at night, knocks on the door, and says, hey, give me some food. Uh, a traveler has, has arrived. I don't have any food to give him. I need you, my friend, to give me some food. And the man who's asleep with his family says, you know, it's kind of like parents with young kids, like, go back to bed, get out of here. No, I'm not getting up to give you food. And the dude just keeps knocking. Hey, I need food. Hey, I need to, and, and the point of the story, the point of the parable is to persist in prayer. The knocking, the seeking, the asking, God answers. Brothers and sisters, when we go to the Lord corporately, what is it but the whole church banging on the doors of heaven, crying out to God, asking for his help, going before our Lord and our Father? This is what happens when the gathered church prays. We go before the Lord, and he is pleased to give us power. We don't always see, right? I mean, in Acts 4, you saw the, the Spirit descend, the, the building shaked. Uh, 
I've never seen a building shake, an earthquake come about because of a prayer meeting. But we can be sure that God is answering our prayers. That's why as a church, we devote so much time to prayer in our services. You know, it's a sad statement about evangelical Christianity that often our worship services are more focused, it seems, on the horizontal than the vertical. Uh, Beloved, when we praise God to begin our service, when we confess our sins to our Father and we ask for his help and his grace in so many of the needy situations that are our lives, this isn't idle time, right? I, I know it's easy to check out. Uh, I know it's easy. We close our eyes and let our minds wander. Uh, But beloved, let me encourage you to press in during that time, uh, to ask the Lord to help focus your heart and mind. Uh, Let me encourage you, uh, when somebody is praying, you know, you may have heard the language, when somebody's praying up front, they try to say we. Instead of just saying like, I pray for this, I pray for that, I pray for this, we try to say we. Lord, we pray for the Bassets. We pray for the Geikamas. We pray for the Taylors. We pray for Carly. Because it really is Mark leading the whole congregation in prayer. One of the ways that you can just signify that you agree with what's been prayed, you can feel free to give amens during the prayer as you see fit. And then even at the end of the prayer, you can say amen. Um, Don't be obnoxious. But the goal is actually to say amen loud enough that other people can hear you. Yes, I agree with this Christ-centered, Christ-exalting prayer for whomever it is. Of course, it's the importance of corporate prayer that also leads us to gather every Sunday night for prayer. You know, I, I love hearing updates from various members, different things going on in the ministry and life of the church. Uh, I love grabbing a meal together afterwards. There's so much about Sunday nights that I love. I love giving other brothers a chance to preach. But let's not lose the focus of going to the Lord in prayer. We are just a needy group of people. We just are. We're not impressive. And so we go before the Lord together as his people to devote ourselves to prayer. Because unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. I don't know about you, but when people ask me, how's it going? My default reaction is often to say what? Oh, yeah, busy. Good, but busy. Yeah, there can be a little bit of an ego trip in there, right? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm busy because I'm important. I'm busy because I have things to do. But if somebody were to say to me, oh, Scott, you know, what's going on? What are, what are you so busy with? How many of us would say prayer? Oh, yeah, I'm, I just... I got a whole lot of sins I got to confess. God is so amazing. There are just millions and billions of reasons to praise him. I, I just, I, you can't praise him enough. I, I am so needy and those I love are so needy that I, there are just so many requests that I've, I, I don't have enough time to pray. I just have so many things to pray about. Beloved, the sad reality is that we're all prone to be busy with a thousand good things, but to neglect the one crucial thing, calling out to God. Let this be an encouragement and a challenge to you. Uh, God delights to see his children praying. God loves to see his children depending on him in prayer. 
if you don't come regularly on Sunday nights, let me encourage you to, to maybe think of a, a consistency that you could come. Maybe it's once a month or every six weeks. Maybe it's every other week. Uh, I know distance and family and health and work, there are lots of areas of our lives that God calls us to be faithful in. There are lots of ways that we're called to serve him in all of life. I'm not trying to minimize those. But let's be sure that as much as we're busying ourselves with academics and sports and leisure and vacation and work, let's be sure that as a congregation, we busy ourselves with prayer. Of course, all that raises the question, how exactly should we be praying? Uh, verse 2 concludes that we should be praying by being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful simply means that prayer is one of the ways that we prevent spiritual lethargy. Uh, we stay awake. That would be another, be, be awake, another translation. For the Christian, prayer is like breathing. You know, it's normal and life-giving and necessary. Prayer attunes us to the spiritual realities of the world and allows us to see the world as it really is. It revels in the grandeur of God and the mercy of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. It humbles the proud heart, strengthens the weak need, emboldens the timid, comforts the mourner. In prayer, we kind of like, so I wear contacts, and if, if I don't put in my contacts, if I don't put in my glasses, like you don't want me driving. You probably don't even want me like making eggs. But let it, like, if we go throughout our lives without prayer, it's way worse. We're trying to share the gospel. We're trying to disciple our kids. We're trying to be faithful in the workplace. We do it absent the Lord and his, his clarifying work in prayer. We're, we're dangerous. We don't see the world as it really is. We're not watchful to spiritual realities. And of course, our prayers should be marked by thanksgiving. We've seen this theme multiple times in Colossians. Over and over, Paul calls the believers there to be thankful. Not so much in a general sense, though of course that's great, uh, but of course as it relates to our salvation. That's what our assurance of pardon highlighted for us from Colossians, not Isaiah. Um, there, Paul made explicit that we should be thankful for the triune God bringing us to salvation. We said this before, but I just think it's really important. Uh, one of the marks of being a Christian is a profound gratitude for your salvation. And the reason for that gratitude is because we know that the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, being joined up into God's heavenly family, getting new brothers and sisters in the church, getting hope and life and peace through Christ, all of that is given freely and undeservedly. The difference is, my guess is that when you get your monthly paycheck, you don't run into your boss's office and express incredible gratitude and thanksgiving and appreciation and amazement at your pay. You aren't filled with admiration and just joy unspeakable because they cut you a check. Why? Well, because you know that you earned it. You, you put in the hours. You did the work. They owe you your wages. But beloved, that is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about getting what we deserve, what we are owed. If that were the case, then we'd all be in hell right now. 
You know, what makes the message of Christianity so amazing is that grace is greater than all our sins. Though we deserve an eternity in judgment, we've been gifted an eternity of joy. Beloved, praise the Lord. That's what we're thankful for. If you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, are you glad that you are a Christian? Are you thankful for being a Christian? When our gratitude to God declines, it is often because we have forgotten just how gracious God is. We've forgotten just how sinful we are. We've forgotten just how abounding his love is towards sinners. And of course, that gratitude helps inform our praying right? Because when we're praying, we're asking for things, but gratitude reminds us of what we've already been given. Gratitude reminds us all the grace God has already bestowed upon us. Even as we ask for more of God's help and blessing, thanksgiving reminds us of all that Christ is for us. And so when we gather as a church, what specifically should we be praying for? Oh, that brings us to our second point in verses three and four. Pray for the proclamation of the gospel. Pray for the proclamation of the gospel. We read, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. You know, when we ask God for his help, we don't dishonor him as if we were bothering him. Rather, we honor him as we show our reliance upon him. And so here, Paul asks for two particular things. Uh, And just as an aside, if the apostle Paul needs prayer, and if the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asks his disciples to pray and stay watchful, let me just say, as an aside, that it's a good bet that you should be praying for your pastors. If the apostle Paul needs the Lord's help and prayer from the Colossian Christians, then you should probably be praying for Dave and Mark and I, uh, that the Lord would give us grace and humility and wisdom and unity as we think about how to proclaim the gospel. We all need God's help. And so the first thing that Paul asks for is in the middle of verse 3. He's not above asking for prayer. He asks asks for prayer that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Now, I think Paul means this literally, right? I mean, like, he's literally in prison. So he's saying, guys, pray that God opens the jail door, that we get out of here. The Lord did that for Peter in Acts 12. He did it for Paul in Acts 16. If God wants North Korea to start granting missionary visas, he'll do it like that. He'll open that door immediately. But it's also true for our everyday life, isn't it? Uh, I think if if I reflect upon the prayer request, I I don't know, it's got to be top three that God has answered in my own life. It's this one. Um, I can remember many times, as Kate and I were going to sleep, we pray together. I I can remember many, many times one of us would say to the other, I feel like I haven't had any good gospel conversations lately. Can you just pray that God would open a door? 
And it just feels like super often the very next day, the Lord sets up some divine appointment with some person in some setting that I wouldn't have expected. God, I mean, there's a difference, right, between God opening a door and us trying to pry a door open with all our might. Sometimes you're just talking with a friend and out of the blue, they bring up spiritual concerns. Uh, Sometimes Chris Record emails out of the blue saying, hey, Scott, I'm a Buddhist, but I want to come to church. I've got lots and lots of questions. Can I show up? I want to know what it means to follow Jesus. And then there are times when we try a bunch of different approaches and someone just shows zero interest in discussing the things of Christ. Faith and spirituality just doesn't even seem on their radar. We try to open the door, but it just slams shut in our faces. Um, Beloved, when that happens, that's okay. God is sovereign over that. You don't need to force the issue. You can quietly pray for that person, that if God didn't open the door for you to discuss Christ with them, that there would be another Christian that God would open the door for. Because, of course, the goal is to declare Christ. Uh, That is the incredible news of who Jesus is and what he has done to redeem a sinful humanity. I think Thanksgiving is really related not only to our praying for the advance of the gospel, but also to our speaking, declaring the word of the gospel. When we speak of who Jesus is, do we do so with an evident joy and gratitude, or do we do it begrudgingly and reluctantly? Uh, Christians, when we evangelize, we're hoping that people will find what we have found. We want them to have what we have been given. We want to share Christ, but if we are not thankful for what we have, if the gift doesn't give us joy, then why would anyone else want it? You know, if you go to a restaurant and and you and your friends, you you get different meals and somebody says, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Do you want to try it? You're like, no. If it was terrible, if you don't like it, I don't want it. But if you say, you go to Helen's and Concord and you get the chicken and waffles and you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You've got to try it. Yeah, I, I think I will. It is because knowing Christ is so great that we overflow with thankfulness and prayer and evangelism. But if you're not persuaded that knowing Christ is amazing, you're not going to be very persuasive towards others. Um, More than that, if following Christ is a burdensome thing to you, why would you even want to invite your friends and neighbors into that experience? It's precisely because knowing Christ is so meaningful and joy-filled and life-giving and hope-providing that we are so eager to share him with others. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is the message that we want to share with you. It is the best message in the whole world. There is literally no greater news of how you are made in the image of God You're not in a cosmic accident, but God in his love knew who you were before the creation of the world. Yet we all have sinned and rebelled against this God. 
we've all not wanted to live under his authority. We've wanted to be our own authorities. Not wanted to go his way, but go our own way. And because of that, we've earned and deserved death for our sinning. Yet God, in his great love, sent his own son to live the perfect life that you and I could never live to die on the cross for our sins, suffering our punishment, reaping what we sowed so that he might rise from the dead and now offer new life and hope, forgiveness of sins, not on the basis of your church attendance, not on the basis of how often you read your Bible or how nice you are to your neighbors, but solely on the basis of his cross and resurrection. Uh, This is the news that is available to all, uh, to young and old, to white and black, to Eastern and Western, ancient and modern, educated and uneducated, rich and poor, hardworking and not so hardworking, working at home, working in the workplace, boys and girls, men and women, no matter where you are in life, this is the message that is always relevant. Because this is always our greatest need. I appreciate what Mark said in his prayer. Uh, Friends, we all have various needs in our lives. The biggest one is oftentimes the most unknown to those who who do not know Christ. The greatest need that we possess is how we could be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. This is the need that if you are this morning, if you're not a Christian, we would call you to put your faith in Christ. Trust in the Son of God and His forgiveness that you might know eternal life. Uh, Christians, this is not a message that we're just to know intellectually, but we're to have it transform our own hearts, that it might transform our lives. Christian, if you want to grow in your evangelism and speaking the word of Christ, let me encourage you that the best way to do that is not necessarily to study methods or rehearse doctrines or strategize plans, as helpful as those can be, but instead we want a heart overflowing with thankfulness to Christ. So that then it just kind of just kind of bubbles over. It just overflows. And so notice, before Paul gets to his second prayer request in verse 4, he adds at the end of verse 3, uh, he refers to the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Here we see the cost of faithfully proclaiming the gospel. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. A Christian, you can expect that your faithful declaration of the word of Christ will bring opposition. Opposition and persecution is not optional to the Great Commission. It is central to it. Why has God ordained suffering to be the context in which faithful gospel proclamation takes place? Why did he set it up this way? Why did Paul say in chapter 2 that he rejoiced in his sufferings as he ministered the gospel? Well, it's for the same reason that God could have written the gospel in the clouds, but he chose not to. 
because the medium is the message. It is not fitting for mighty angels to proclaim the message of a crucified Savior. It would not do to have healthy, wealthy, life-is-easy Christians declaring the call to take up your cross and follow Jesus. The message and the messengers of the gospel indicate that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Now, suffering for Christ doesn't always look like imprisonment. You know, sometimes we can get the opinion, I think, that, that real persecution, that, that the only thing that is real persecution is going to prison for Christ or having your life threatened in Russia or India or Iran. But listen to Jesus in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Did Jesus say anything about being thrown in prison for being a Christian? Right there, did he say anything about having your life threatened for being a Christian? No, he said persecution is being reviled. Uh, People slandering you, uttering all kinds of evil against you. Uh, What this means, Christian, is that I want you to know that when your HR department gives you a difficult time at work, uh, you can rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. If your family disowns you, or your friends mock you, or your own children reject you, you are a living, breathing, walking testimony of the worth of Christ. Suffering does not detract from the mission It is God's ordained means for its accomplishment. And so look at Paul's second prayer request in verse 4. He asks for prayer that I may make the word of Christ clear, which is how I ought to speak. Uh, Just last night, Kate and I were talking about how I can do this better in my preaching. In our gospel speaking, we don't aim for eloquence or the appearance of wisdom. We're not trying to impress We're trying to be clear. And isn't it amazing that the Apostle Paul would ask for prayer for this? Like, does God really have anything to do with how clearly I speak? You know, with what words I use, how easy to understand they are. Does God really get into the nitty-gritty details of our lives? And the answer is yes. Trinity Church of Bedford, if we are to faithfully share the gospel, we are totally dependent on God. We need him to open the door, we need him to open our mouths, and we need him to open their hearts. You remember in Acts 16, uh, the Apostle Paul, he went to uh, the riverside in Philippi, and it says there that he went and spoke to Lydia, and the Lord opened up her heart to pay attention to what he was speaking. Oh, friends, that is exactly what we're going to pray about tonight uh, as we gather together. We're going to pray that God would do just those three things, amongst other things. It is not enough just for God to open the door or for us to open our mouths. We want God to open people's hearts. We need God to give the growth. And so we come to our final section in verses 5 and 6, entitled, Living and Speaking Winsomely. Verse 5 says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Here Paul turns his attention to Christians' behavior around unbelievers. 
You remember in chapter 3 when Paul was talking about compassion and love and humility and uh, peace and unity? He was mainly talking about relationships inside the church. And here he turns his attention outside. Because how often have you been trying to share the gospel and someone's response is what? Well, the church is full of hypocrites. That's exactly right. It doesn't matter how eloquent or even clear our speech. If our lives are marked by ungodliness and foolishness, our witness will be muted. Our lives will either commend the gospel or they will contradict it. So we are called to walk wisely before outsiders. We're also called to make the best use of time. Uh, Now, I'm sure the Apostle Paul would be very supportive of the productivity genre of literature, but this verse is not about time management, not really. Uh, the point is that we are to make the most of the time. That is to take advantage of any opportunity that comes our way. Again, the Apostle Paul is mainly talking about evangelism and relationship with outsiders. As Christians, just as we are praying for God to open a door for the word, so we need to be looking for these opportunities, making the most of them. When you're at the car repair shop, Do you take a genuine interest in the service technician? When you're getting your coffee, how can you get to know your barista? At school meetings and neighborhood block parties with unbelieving family, how can you use those opportunities, make the most of them, to speak of Christ? Uh, Let me just say, as one of your pastors, how incredibly encouraged I am at how you all do this. Uh, This has been probably like... One of my top joys over the past year or so is just seeing how so many of you are kind of stepping outside your comfort zones um, and, and trying to speak the gospel to coworkers and neighbors and family and friends. Uh, it is just such an encouragement to me when you come and share evangelism stories. I, I praise God for his spirit's work in each of you in causing you to look for those opportunities and make the most use of the time. And so our passage concludes in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here, Paul's concern isn't so much with speech in general, but again, it's with evangelistic speech. The word speech is actually the word, word, the same word Paul used in verse 3 to describe the gospel proclamation. So he said in verse 3, you know, that I may make the word of Christ clear. And here in verse six, let your word, that is the word of, your word of Christ, always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So notice here in verse six that evangelism isn't left to the professionals. The apostle Paul was literally called and set apart by the risen Christ for the task of evangelistic apostolic proclamation. And so you might have thought if you're a Colossian Christian, like, whew, Glad we got Paul on our side, sharing the gospel. Uh, But here the Apostle Paul reminds us that not only apostles, but pastors and lay people, we are all called to speak the gospel. When Paul says he wants their speech to be gracious, uh, he sounds a lot like Peter. In 1 Peter 3, Peter told his audience to always be prepared to make it offense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
Uh, Notice how both passages mention answering somebody's questions. It's as if our lives should be provocative. The way we love and serve others, the way we put sin to death, the way we take up our cross and follow Christ, people should be asking us about the hope that is within us. And both of these passages, Peter and here in Colossians, they evidence the need for gentle or gracious speech. That's the the salty seasoning, as it were. Uh, Because you see, salt makes everything more enjoyable, more digestible, more appealing. So a few nights ago, uh, my wonderful wife made delicious salmon. You know, you get to Trader Joe's, you get the frozen salmon, put some great seasoning on it. Kids liked it, which is a win. Um, But there was only one problem. I did get permission to share this story. Uh, we, We didn't have white rice, but we had wild rice. If you don't know what wild rice is, what it tastes like, just think of cardboard in bite-sized pieces. And so, you know, I'm a trooper. I I wanted to set a good example for the kids, put a few spoonfuls in my mouth, but I just couldn't do it. But with a few dashes of salt, what was once impossible to take down, I now devoured. It was good. Uh, I'll eat that. Beloved, that's what graciousness does to our speech. We have the best news in all the world to share. But it is also the hardest news to share because it's of a holy God, personal accountability for our ugly sins, the danger of hell, the necessity of cross-bearing. And we were telling that to people with unrepentant hearts, the kind of hearts that we used to have that loved self but didn't love God. What gracious winsomeness does is make all of that a little bit easier to to digest, a little bit easier to take in. It's not that we change the message or alter God's word in any way, but there is a tone and an empathy and a warmth and a winsomeness, a kindness and a love that is compelling. And so Christian, in sum, pray and speak, suffer and live. These are like the four engines on a massive C-17 cargo aircraft, uh, bringing the gospel to our neighbors and to the ends of the world. All are necessary. All are ordained of God. And in this, the Apostle Paul wasn't inventing anything new. He was simply following the pattern of the Lord Jesus, whose godly life provoked questions and curiosity, who depended on his Father in prayer, who spoke the good news of Christ's kingdom, and most of all, who suffered so that you and I might find eternal life. May we follow his example as we proclaim his excellencies. Let's pray. Lord God, we marvel that you would entrust to us the most uh, precious message on the earth to sinners such as us. Lord, we confess how woefully inadequate and insufficient we are for these things. And so we need your help. Lord, we pray that this week you would open doors. We pray that you would open our mouths. We pray that you would open hearts. 
Lord, we ask that you'd fill us with thanksgiving for all that Christ has done. We pray that if there are any here who have not turned to your son, confessed their sins, and found new life in him, we pray they would do so even today. Lord, we ask that you would show mercy. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.